today's Bible reading will be from Genesis chapter 40. We'll be reading the whole chapter. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief, cup, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him in his master's house, Why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, In my dream... I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me, and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this prison. Out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favourable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Thanks, Laura. Excellent reading. A wonderful story we're about to read today. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Roger. I'm one of the elders here at, uh, at GPC. And it's my privilege to open God's Word for us this morning. Uh, this brings us to the end of our current series of talks on Genesis. And uh, as you'll see, we go out on a high note. 
But before we get stuck into that story, let's pray. Lord, as we open your word this morning and continue considering the story of your servant Joseph, please help us to see clearly your word for us, to hear it, understand it, and apply it fully in our lives. Amen. We're going to be looking at both chapters 40 and 41. Uh, we'll read more of chapter 41 as we go through the talk this morning. But we need to go back and recapitulate about what's happened in the story of Genesis so far. The book of Genesis is the story of God's faithful love for his creation and for us. And it's told us how God made the earth and then how he made us in his image to be in relationship with him and to nurture and care for the creation he's made and to represent him here on earth. But it's also told us that we rejected him and we broke that relationship and as a result we were cast out. We, went to, we were doomed to live in a broken world and then, and then to die, separated from God. But of course, as we read further along in Genesis, we've discovered that God didn't leave us in that hopeless situation, the situation that we'd created. He set, us, he set in place his plan to bring us back into relationship with himself, to save us from the effects of our rejection of him. He showed his love and he kept his promises to us. He did this, bringing us back to him, by forming initially a covenant with a guy called Abraham. The covenant was based on a response from Abraham and three promises. Abraham's response was to follow God and to obey him. And the promises were that if he did that, God would make Abraham the father of a great nation. He'd give him descendants as numerous as the sand, grains of sand. But he would give him land, that the nation would be established in their own land and that he would bless all nations through Abraham's descendants. And so as we read through Genesis, we looked for the fulfilment of those promises. Now we've seen that he has been fulfilling, he has been fulfilling his promises and maintaining his faithfulness to his chosen people for our benefit. The people he's worked through have been like us. Sinful, uh, at times uh, wise, but at times incredibly foolish. Despite their failings, however, God has maintained his faithful progress with them and he's progressed his promises. He progressed his promises to Abraham, firstly, through Isaac, his son. And then through Isaac's son, Jacob, and then for the last uh, few weeks, we've been seeing how he's continued to progress his promises through Jacob's son, Joseph. Now, Joseph is a man who's been promised much by God. Uh, not only is he the beneficiary of those covenant promises, promises, which means that he's been aware of the presence of God with him, and he knows that God is, uh, is, is fulfilling his word through him, through his promises through him. But Joseph has also received some promises of his own. They've come in the form of two dreams. Okay, there we are there. Okay, those dreams promised him that he would get great power and authority. His brothers would bow down to him. Not only would his brothers bow down to him, but his mum and dad will as well. And Joseph knows that those dreams are from God. 
And because he understands that God is a promise-keeping God, he knows that they will come to fruition. And so it is we come to chapter 40. And we're looking to see those promises being fulfilled and you know what? It doesn't look like it, does it? Joseph's not in a position of power of authority. He's hundreds of kilometres from home. He's been a slave. He's been accused of rape. And now he's in jail. Languish in jail. And it's not much fun in jail. Psalm 105 confirms that God sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. And they bruised his feet with shackles. And his neck was put in irons. Joseph is in a difficult situation. And so it would have been understandable that as he looked around him at the dungeon walls and he felt the shackles bite into his feet, and as he struggled under the weight of the iron collar around his neck, I know the picture there doesn't have an iron collar, but it should, uh, he would have observed the hopelessness and depression of those who shared his dungeon with him. And I'm positive that Joseph would have thought, like we do at times, what are you doing, God? Why am I here? What did I do to deserve this? And what happened to your promises to me? It's a difficult situation for him. But despite the apparent hopelessness of the situation, from Joseph's point of view, we are told that God is still with him. We see that at the end of chapter 39. We know he's still working for Joseph's good. And the thing that is fantastic is that Joseph is still keeping his part of the covenant. He's still following God. He's still being obedient to his will. He's still living a life of faith, even in jail. We know that because the warden recognises and respects the way he's living his life by trusting him and giving Joseph responsibilities because he knows he can carry them out with honesty and integrity. And so, as Joseph languishes in prison, for an unknown period of time, two new prisoners are brought in. Now we need to understand that these new prisoners are not just ordinary criminals. They're high officials of Pharaoh. They're men who've had the responsibility of protecting Pharaoh. They're his chief cupbearer and his chief baker. The cupbearer was the guy, particularly the chief one, who tasted his wine before Pharaoh had it. Why did he taste it? because it could have been poisoned. And the cupbearer would give his life for Pharaoh. And the baker was the guy who ensured the food wasn't poisoned. The food was cooked well, and that it was of, of the sort of food that uh, the Pharaoh was in, would enjoy. Because of this role, these high officials would have had the ear of Pharaoh. They were confidence of him. And we see that occur in chapter 31, the importance of that. But for Joseph these men would have had the capacity to get him out of prison. He would have seen that, hey, perhaps through these eyes, God is going to fulfil those promises he made to me. Now, we're not told what those officials have done. We know that Pharaoh is angry with them, so angry that he imprisons them, and he leaves them to sweat it out while he chooses, to, to when he chooses to pass judgment on them. These guys would have known that Pharaoh's Getting in Pharaoh's bad book was a difficult thing to do. Pharaoh is an absolute monarch. He holds the power of life and death over his subjects and he wills it readily and I'm positive <coughs> that both men would have seen him put men to death. 
And so when they're thrown in a dungeon with Joseph, they're scared. They're scared for their lives. Now, we don't know how long they shared the dungeon with Joseph. Uh, The text says they were there for a season, which usually means quite a while. Calvin in his commentaries says it was up to a year. But we do know the captain of the guard, and that's probably Joseph's old master Potiphar, places these prisoners with Joseph and directs him to serve them. And so we see a relationship develop between Joseph and the two officials. Now it comes to three days before Pharaoh's birthday, the time when he traditionally passed judgment on people. And on the third day beforehand, both of them have a dream. They know their dreams are important for their futures and they want to know what they mean. And I suspect that because the dreams referred to their two professions, wine and bread, that they would have thought, this is about the future of our, our life with Pharaoh. But because there's no one to interpret them and they don't understand them, they're in a state of distress. And Joseph's come to know them so well that not only he's noticed their emotional state, he's concerned for their welfare. He goes to them and he says, what's up? And they say to him, had these two dreams. We don't understand them and there's no one to, to interpret them for them. <clears throat> and Joseph corrects them. Those two Egyptians would have understood that interpretations belong to wise men. Interpretations belong to a set of people in their community who were given those skills. But Joseph says no. He points out that interpreting dreams is not a human task. It's the province of God. And not only that, but if they tell him their dreams, he, Joseph, will give the interpretation of God through him. In effect, He says, I'll reveal what God is promising will happen to you. And they understand this, they believe him. So they tell Joseph their dreams and he tells them what it means. As they sit there, he encourages them to listen. You know what? It's good news for the cupbearer, but it's not so good for the baker. Joseph explains that the both dreams had the same meaning at one level. Both of them mean they're going to be lifted up by Pharaoh. But they're not going to be lifted up in the same way. The cupbearer will be lifted up and back to his old position of favour, the right hand of Pharaoh. The baker will be lifted up as well. But he'll be impaled and hung. There's a wonderful, if somewhat macabre, play on words and the words lifted up there. Uh, Moses obviously had a sardonic sense of humour when he was writing this passage. And so the future is told to these two officials. Now, back when I was 22 years old, I spent a week in Thailand on R&R from the army. And one of the places I visited was the ancient capital of Ayatollah. I a photo there. The guide took me to an old pavilion, or us, if you want to tour, to an old pavilion facing an open field. And the pavilion had steps up to the dais and there was a block of stone placed on the floor there. And at the bottom, on the right and left-hand sides of the steps, there were two more blocks of stone. And 
But God explained to us that this is where the old kings of Siam sat to receive and pass judgment on the leaders of the countries he'd conquered. That when he captured the troops, their leaders, their, their, their captains, their chieftains, were brought before him. And he also judged political prisoners from there. His throne would be brought out and he would sit in magnificence behind that stone on the throne. Two soldiers would stand at the bottom of that steps. On the right-hand side was a soldier whose arm was held out to hold the robes of those who were coming up for judgment. And on the left-hand side was a soldier with a large broadsword. Indeed, she shows the statue of that soldier. I, I couldn't find the photo of it again. My old photos will deteriorate. Um, what would happen is that in front of the gathered citizens of the, of the city, uh, these prisoners would be stripped naked, their robes given to the, to the soldier on the left, and they'd be escorted up the stairs. And they would kneel on that block of stone with their heads bowed before the king. And when the king of Siam was ready, he'd lift the head of the prisoner up just as Joseph lifted up the heads of... Uh, sorry, as Pharaoh lifted up the heads of those, those prisoners. And then when the king was ready, he'd pass judgment, look the person in the face and tell them their fate. If the judgment was favourable, the prisoner was escorted down the stairs to be dressed back up in their robes and released. If the judgment was not favourable, the prisoner was escorted down the stairs where he was beheaded by the swordsman. No arguments... No defence lawyers or appeals. The king wielded the power of life and death. And that was what happened. I suspect the situation was very much similar to the cupbearer and the baker. As they stood before Pharaoh, they knew their judgment was coming. But there was a difference. The difference between them <coughs> and the prisoners of the king of Siam was that they knew their judgment before they knelt before him. And they would have approached Pharaoh with very different attitudes. The cupbearer would have approached Pharaoh hoping that Joseph's prediction was right. The baker would have approached Pharaoh praying that he was wrong. And like the king of Siam, Pharaoh was an absolute monarch. His word was law. And in this case, as is always, his judgment was true to God's words. The cupbearer was returned to his position and the baker was beheaded. This was important for establishing the fact that God is a promise-keeping God. We'll see how that works in chapter 41. We also get an insight into Joseph's emotional state. When we look at his request to the cupbearer, we see that he desperately wants to be out of jail and he wants his innocence to, to be acknowledged. He says to the cupbearer, when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was forced to be carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. Joseph knows he can do nothing to extricate himself from the prison. But he knows that cupbearer can help. He knows that if Pharaoh accepts his innocence then Pharaoh can release him with a simple snap of his fingers by saying the word. And so he asks the cupbearer for help. But of course, the cupbearer lets him down. 
The cupbearer is a fallible human being and in the celebrations of his return to the high position, he forgets all about that Hebrew slave, the one who served him in prison and gave him such good news. And so at the end of chapter 40, we find Joseph continuing to languish in prison. But God isn't finished with Joseph. He's still working out his promises to him. Two years pass. A long time. And Pharaoh has two dreams. The dreams about cows and wheat, where lean cows eat up fat cows, and good wheat, sorry, good sweet is swallowed up by thin, uh, empty wheat. These are confusing dreams and they disturb him. Pharaoh knows their importance and he tries to get an interpretation from his various advisors, his wizards. But they can't provide the interpretation for him. And because the cupbearer is there beside him, and the cupbearer is someone who he has a, uh, a relationship with, who he listens with, he mentions it to his cupbearer. And the cupbearer remembers. Indeed, I think God jogs the cupbearer's memory. We read that in uh, 41, chapter 41, verses 9 to 13. Let's read them. And the cupbearer said to, to Pharaoh, Oh, today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams. And he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. And this is that story. And he understands the, um, the witness that the cupbearer has given to, to Joseph. And so he summons Joseph from the dungeon. I suspect that uh, Joseph was both delighted and a bit apprehensive about this summon. Could this mean his release? Could it mean he's going to be declared innocent? Could it be that he's able to get back to that position of authority? Well, when he meets Pharaoh, Joseph discovers that his summons is about his ability to interpret dreams. We read on from Genesis 41, verses 14 to 16. Pharaoh summoned Joseph, and so they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. He shaved himself, changed his clothes, and came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it, but I've heard about you, that you can interpret dreams. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, It's not within my power, but God will speak concerning the welfare of Pharaoh. Notice that Joseph corrects Pharaoh in exactly the same way as he corrected the two officials. He points out that only God can interpret dreams. He can't. But then he reassures Pharaoh that God will speak to Pharaoh. He will speak through Joseph. Now given that Pharaoh doesn't worship God, and indeed Pharaoh would have thought of himself as a god, this would have been a challenging statement for him to accept. But he accepts Joseph's comment And so he tells Joseph his dream. And after he's heard the dream, Joseph passes God's words back to Pharaoh. 
We continue reading in Genesis chapter 41. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, both dreams of Pharaoh have the same meaning. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows represent seven years, and the seven good heads of grain represent seven years. Both dreams have the same meaning. The seven lean, bad-looking cows that come after them represent seven years, as do the seven empty heads of grain, burned with the east wind. They represent seven years of famine. This is just what I told Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the whole land of Egypt. But seven years of famine will occur after them. And all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will devastate the land. The previous abundance of the land will not be remembered because of the famine that follows. For the famine will be very severe. The dream was repeated to Pharaoh because the matter has been decreed by God and God will make it happen soon. So now Pharaoh should look for a wise and discerning man and give him authority over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh should do this. He should appoint officials throughout the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during those seven years of abundance. And they should gather all the excess food during those good years that are coming. And by Pharaoh's authority they should store up grain so the cities will have food and they should preserve it. The food should be held in storage for the land in preparation for the seven years of famine that will occur throughout the land of Egypt. And in this way the land will survive the famine. We need to notice three things about what Joseph tells Pharaoh. Firstly, God, Joseph tells him that God has shown him the future of his country. It's not Pharaoh who's, who's de- who is in control of Egypt. God is in control of Egypt because God is a sovereign God. And Egypt's future is going to be one of devastation. Sure, five years, seven years of good time, but seven years of famine. And what he's saying to Pharaoh is, you're powerless to stop it. Your country will be destroyed. But secondly, Joseph says God has told Pharaoh his plans so that Pharaoh can take appropriate action to address the impact of the famine. And thirdly, not only does God warn Pharaoh, but through Joseph he provides the plan by which Pharaoh can protect his people. He can do that by appointing a wise and honest man to oversee a new food tax. And that food tax will be used in the future, stored up and used to not only feed his people, but we'll also see in the rest of Genesis that he feeds the others from the surrounding area. Now I find it fascinating that Pharaoh doesn't question Joseph's interpretation or the way he should respond. He accepts that the feast and the famine will occur. He acknowledges the wisdom of the plan and he acts on it immediately. Why does he do this? I think it's because of the testimony of the cupbearer. He respects the cupbearer's knowledge. He knows that the cupbearer has witnessed what Joseph's, Joseph's power to interpret under God. And so Pharaoh says, understand this will come true. We see now why the imprisonment and the dreams of the cupbearer and baker were so important. 
God has actually set this up so that Pharaoh would do his will. And we read on in Genesis 41, we see, this advice made sense to Pharaoh and all his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find a man like Joseph, one in whom the Spirit of God is present? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, because God has enabled you to know all this, there is no one as wise and discerning as you are. You will oversee my household, and all my people will submit to your commands. Only I, the king, will be greater than you. See here, Pharaoh says to Joseph, I place you in authority over all the land of Egypt. And there it is. In that simple statement, Pharaoh fulfills God's will for Joseph's life. He's put him in a position of power and authority that was promised by those two dreams. Joseph is released from prison. He's exalted. Joseph sees God's faithfulness and knows that whilst his promises are not yet fully fulfilled, his brothers and his mum and dad have to bow to him yet, he knows with confidence that God's will fulfill his promises. He knows his faith in God is not misplaced. That's the wonder of a promise-keeping God. You know, we too are recipients of God's promises. They haven't been made to us by personal revelation, probably, or through dreams, but they're made to us in God's Word. His Word, the Bible. And they're not the same promises that are made to Joseph. Uh, we live under a different covenant. And those original covenant promises have been fulfilled and expanded. That's what the next rest of the story of the Old Testament tells us. But God has acted to bring mankind back to relationship with himself. And there are literally thousands of promises that God makes to mankind in his word. Uh, in 1962, uh, a book, the book All the Promises of the Bible was uh, published. And Herbert Lockyer there reports that a, a guy, a friend of his named Everett R. Storms, counted 8,810 promises made a record in Scripture. And he records that 7,487 of these promises are made by God to mankind. That's pretty good. There are 37,371 verses in the Bible. 7,000 of those is like, work it out, a sixth of the whole Bible's promises. Now, of course, I'm not going to go through all 7,487 promises now. <laughs> Chris, Chris is rejoicing. Yeah. I could, of course, but no, no, I won't. Um, but I do want to draw our attention to just a few of them. Some of the ones that impact us so importantly. The first of those promises is that Christ is the fulfilment of the covenant promises that God initially made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The promises that he progressed through Joseph's life. God tells us that clearly, so tells that clearly through the angel who spoke to Joseph, uh, the partner of, uh, of Mary, in Matthew 1.21. When he, Joseph, had contemplated this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
Christ is that descendant of Abraham through whom God blesses all nations. And he blesses us by saving us, bringing us back into relationship with himself. But you'll notice that that promise applies to his people. How do we become his people? Well, God gives us the answer through Paul in his letter to the Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God promises that if we have faith in Jesus and if we confess that he's Lord and believe he's raised from the dead, then we are one of God's people. We are in a saving relationship with him. And of course, if we have faith in God, then he promises that we'll never be separated from him. He'll be with us always. We find that also in Romans. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wonderful promise of God being with us. And since God's with us always, we're also always also promised that we'll have access to him through prayer. And by that prayer, God will bless us with his peace. In Philippians, Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's wonderful news. News to be rejoiced in and celebrated. God promises that through faith in Christ we've been brought back to relationship with him, the relationship he originally created. And we're saved from eternal separation from him when we die. And we're held tightly and securely in his arms whilst we live. And he promises that we can experience the peace that comes from knowing that he, God, the creator God, is in control and working all things for our benefit. And we know that God keeps his promises because we've seen them being kept throughout Scripture. And we've seen it here in the story of Joseph. We also need to be aware there's other promises in Scripture. They apply to everybody, regardless of whether or not we believe in Christ. In 2 Corinthians we read, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what due to him for the things he's done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is a promise that we'll all be judged by Christ. In the same way that the cupbearer and the baker appeared before Pharaoh, we'll all appear before Christ. And in the same way that those two officials knew the outcome of Pharaoh's judgment because God had revealed it to him, So we know from Scripture what the outcome of God's judgment will be because he's revealed it to us. God's promise is that we have faith in Christ, that if we have faith in Christ, we'll be found innocent and we'll spend eternity with him. But his promise is also that if we don't have faith in Christ, we don't put our faith there, then we'll be judged guilty and spend eternity without Christ. Remember what Joseph said to Pharaoh. God has told you this because it will happen and he's told you this so you can take action and he's even told you 
what action to take. The same applies to us. God has told us of his judgment because it will happen. And he's told us this so we can take action. And he's even told us what action to take. Have faith in Christ and be reconciled to God through him. Pharaoh understood from the testament of the cupbearer that God always keeps his promises. He was wise. He accepted God's word to him and acted upon it. He promoted Joseph to the position of authority. We know that God keeps his promises. Can we be as wise as Pharaoh and heed God's word and act on it? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are a God who keeps your promises. Thank you for fulfilling your promise to bless our all nations by sending your son Jesus to die for us. And thank you for your promise that through faith in him we can come back into relationship with you. And Lord, thank you for preserving your promises to us in your word, the Bible, so that we may read them and think about them and contemplate them at any time. Help us to be wise with your promises. Help us to read them and understand them. Help us to take hold of them, build our lives upon them and rest firmly throughout our life in the hope they give us. And then God, Lord, when our lives here on earth end, fulfil your promises by walking us fully into your presence for eternity. Amen.